Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and a warm welcome to First Move. I'm Christina McFarlane in for Julia Chatterley. Just ahead on today's show, Hawaiian horror. 36 people now confirmed dead as out-of-control wildfires rage in the Hawaiian island of Maui. More than 11,000 people have been evacuated and thousands still are without power. Officials say it will take years to rebuild. Plus, assassination in Ecuador. The candidate in the Latin American country's upcoming presidential elections has been shot and killed at a campaign event in the capital, Quito. The very latest on the ongoing investigation and where this leaves the violence-torn country just ahead. And inflation in America. Just released data shows headline U.S. consumer inflation rising for the first time in 13 months to a 3.2 percent annual rate. Month over month, however, CPI rose two-tenths of a percent in line with June's levels. Core inflation was pretty much in line with expectations too. And here's the market reaction. U.S. stock futures still holding on to some solid gains after a weaker Wednesday. Europe is on the rise for a second straight session. And Asian stocks finished Thursday's session mostly higher. Modest gains in China and news that the Biden administration is placing fresh restrictions on U.S. tech investments there. And on the very latest that and the Chinese reaction later in the show. But first, details of today's inflation numbers. Rahel Solomon is joining us live. And uh, Rahel, inflation still well above the Fed's 2% target, but not a bad report overall. No, I don't think so, Christina. Good to be with you. So this is a report that needs some context, but I think by and large, most people would say is a solid report that shows continued moderation. So as you said, this is the first time in about a year that headline inflation actually increased. We can show you 3.2% on an annual basis. But Christina, this is a result of what economists call base effects. Essentially, uh, this number has a lot to do with what inflation was doing a year ago. And a year ago, inflation was very low. And so this number looks uh, higher as a result. Essentially, what it means is that it's a statistical quirk. It's a mechanical quirk, uh, the way it's calculated. So let's look at what's happening on a monthly basis, because, Christina, I think that gives us a better sense of what's actually happening with inflation. As you said, on a monthly basis, prices increasing uh, 0.2% or two-tenths of 1%. That is holding steady from the month prior. If you look at core inflation, which the Federal Reserve pays especially close attention to because this is the area of inflation where they can actually control food and energy, not necessarily within the Fed's control. Uh, Core inflation also remains steady on a monthly basis, uh, two-tenths of a percent on an annual basis, 4.7 percent. So as you said, uh, much higher than the Fed's two percent target. When we look at sort of what's happening with prices in terms of categories, so shelter or what our viewers around the world might consider accommodations, that was responsible, Christina, for 90 percent of the monthly increase that we saw in inflation. So shelter is still a big contributor there. But we saw declines in areas like uh, 
airline fares, used cars and trucks, and medical care. So some some relief on that side of the equation. So what does the Fed do with this report? Well, we have a few more weeks before the Federal Reserve meets again in mid-September, mid to late September. And so they'll get another jobs report. They will get several more inflation reports. So they will still have more to digest. But I can say that there is some there is a feeling that a report like this would actually give the Fed some encouragement to actually pause with the rate hike. Citibank, in fact, saying this morning that a report where we saw 0.2 percent inflation, which we did, would give the Fed some some room to perhaps pause. But a lot more data to come. But I think it is still another report that shows moderating inflation, which is why, as you pointed out, markets are still uh, solidly higher on the news. Yeah, well, markets keeping their fingers crossed for that. But as you say, Rahel, this just one of uh, the first of a few key yeah. metric reports due out in the next month. Uh, thanks for breaking it down for us, Rahel Solomon there. Now, a monster fire in Hawaii. At least 36 people killed in Maui after a massive wildfire ripped through the island. These satellite images taken before and after the fire showing the scale of the devastation here. One survivor describing the dire situation. Still get dead bodies in the water, floating, and on the seawall. They've been sitting there since last night. We've been pulling people out since last night, trying to save people's lives. And I feel like we're not getting the help we need. This is a nationwide issue at this point. Yeah, we need help, a lot of help. We got to get people down here. A desperate situation for residents. Veronica Miracle has the latest details for us. Oh my gosh, look at the harbor. The view from above is of shock and heartbreak. Oh my gosh. We were not prepared for what we saw. It looked like an area that had been bombed in the war. Wildfires rampaging across the island of Maui. Our entire street was burned to the ground. Decimating homes and businesses. Local people have lost everything. They've lost their house, they've lost their animals, and... It's, it's devastating. Lahaina is on fire. The historic town of Lahaina, a popular tourist and economic hub on the island's west side, particularly affected with hundreds of structures impacted. It happened so fast. People stuck in traffic trying to get out and they're, they're slain on, on both sides of the road, like something out of a, a, a horror movie. Most of the fires on Maui, fueled in part by violent winds caused by Hurricane Dora, churning more than 800 miles away, those winds now subsiding as the storm pushes away. The primary focus is to save lives and to prevent human suffering and to mitigate great property loss. State Department crews assisting in efforts to restore communication across the islands and distribute water. With military helicopters aiding in extinguishing the fires. Two CH-47 supporting Maui County, they flew 13 hours, did 58 drops and about 150,000 gallons of water to to assist with suppression of the fire. Recovery will be a long road ahead, according to Hawaii's Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke. The damage to the infrastructure, it's not just... um, Buildings, I mean, these were small businesses that invested in Maui. These were local residents. And, uh, you know, we need to figure out a way to help a lot of people in the next several years. And a survivor who narrowly escaped the fire with his family was on CNN this morning sharing his experience. Take a listen. It all happened very quickly. We knew that the wind was bad and 
we could smell the smoke. It started before noon. The power went out. The telephone, radio, internet, all of our connection was lost. And that's not uncommon for the infrastructure that we have in Lahaina whenever there's a storm like that. Um, but I made my way home that morning, yesterday morning, to check in on Grandpa. He was fine. Everything was fine. Just a bit windy, no electricity. By 3.30 in the afternoon, the fire that had started a few miles above us up on the mountaintop had made its way down toward our home and then crossed its way over the highway to the condominium across the street from us. And in an hour, our neighbor's yard was on fire. The smoke was filling our house and we had no choice but to evacuate. We had no time to grab anything. We lost our kitten in the process of evacuating. And honestly, we're grateful to my brother who returned home to retrieve my grandmother's urn before he left to evacuate as well. And uh, do you know, have you confirmed that the, the home is, is lost? My dad was able to make his way home before he evacuated and met up with us. The home is lost. I can say everything in Lahaina is completely gone. The aerial footage that I wish I could have shared with you this morning was completely devastating to see when we woke up, seeing what our town had transformed into just overnight. Everyone that I know and love, everyone that I'm related to, that I communicate with, my colleagues, friends, family, we're all homeless. Thousands of people are homeless in Lahaina and hundreds, if not at least a thousand, are still missing and unaccounted for. And we're hoping that the death toll does not rise too much higher once it's confirmed. All right, let's turn now to an assassination in Ecuador. The presidential candidate shot and killed after a campaign event. The moment of the attack appears to have been caught on camera. We need to warn you, this video is disturbing. At least 12 gunshots are what you can hear there on that footage. Uh, police say the suspect died after a shootout. Rafael Romeo is joining us now live. And Rafael, this is an event that has shocked the nation. Uh, just walk us through what happened during uh, the shooting and also why Villa Vicencio was targeted. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's shocked the entire country, Cristina. Fernando Villavicencio had just finished just finished, Cristina, a speech after a rally held at a school in Quito, the Ecuadorian capital. As he was leaving the school and being ushered into a car, gunfire rang out. It was at least, like you said, 12 shots. And all the people who moments before were cheering him on dove for cover. Officials say this was a targeted attack against the man who once described his own country as a narco state run by a political mafia. Authorities say nine people were injured. Villavicencio, a 59-year-old activist, journalist, and po politician who was running in Ecuador's presidential elections to be held in less than two weeks on August 20th. He would frequently speak openly against corruption in his country and had recently said that the mafia had subjugated his homeland. And just to give you an idea, Christine, of how bad the security situation is in Ecuador, seven of the eight ca candidates in the election were under police protection. The attack happened less than two weeks before the August 20th election, but officials say it will still go on as planned. In a video shot at a rally just a few days ago, Villavicencio said he was refusing to wear a bulletproof vest because the people, his supporters, he said, 
were his bulletproof vest. He also said he had received death threats from a known drug trafficking gang in Ecuador. And current Ecuadorian President Guillermo Lasso vowed the killing will not go unpunished and announced a 60-day state of emergency. Christina, mm -hmm. back to you. Uh, Rafael, as you touched on there, we know organized crime has been a real issue in Ecuador for years now. I remember reporting just a few weeks ago about the revolts within prisons that were happening, the situation mm -hmm. out of control there. But why has it become so particularly acute in recent months and in the last year? Yeah, what officials are saying is that uh, Ecuador has uh, the tentacles of different uh, criminal groups, not only from inside the country, from, but also from outside, including, uh, some say, uh, Mexican uh, drug cartels. And what's been happening in the last years, and you're right, we've been covering this, uh, the prisons have had a particularly really bad problem with some of the gangs facing each other inside the prison. You get the idea that the criminals have the control, not the authorities. And this is all, only a little taste of what people are experiencing. Regular people in Ecuador also complaining about a security problem, saying that this is the main issue as we go into an election in just a few days, Christina. Yeah, important to remember this is uh, just coming just ahead of that election later uh, this month. Rafael Romo, appreciate it. Thank you. Attending now to several new developments in Ukraine, authorities have ordered a mandatory evacuation around a city in the Kharkiv region after intense Russian shelling in the area. Heavy combat is also ongoing in southern Ukraine. Uh, meanwhile, the Russian-controlled Zaporizhia nuclear power plant lost connection to its main remaining external power line. The state-owned power generating company says the plant is now running on a backup line. All of this comes after the mayor of Moscow said that two attack drones were shot down as they approached the city on Thursday morning. Uh, Russia's Ministry of Defense says two other drones were also shot down near a city in the Crimean Peninsula. Well, Fred Pleitkin is joining us with more on all of this. And Fred, I just want to turn first to the situation in the Kharkiv region, this, uh, this mm. town of Kupiansk, which we know uh, was liberated uh, from the Russians last September. So how significant are these orders to evacuate we're hearing now? Well, it certainly indicates that the Ukrainian authorities believe that right now it's becoming extremely dangerous in that town. And one of the things they have said is why they're doing this is not necessarily because the Russian army is threatening to march into that place or to advance into that place, but because Kupiansk has been under such heavy shelling. And it was quite interesting. I was looking at the mandatory evacuation order just a couple of minutes ago, and it seems as though around 12,000 people, including 600 children, are being told to evacuate that area. And it pertains to the town of Kupiansk, but also a little sort of suburb, smaller town on the other side of a major river that is there. And that river is very significant because that is an, a natural barrier, if you will, uh, for that Russian military that seems to be trying to advance there. One of the things, uh, Christina, that the Ukrainians have been saying is they believe what the Russians are trying to do up there is concentrate their forces to try and make them some gains to also relieve some of the pressure that the Russian military is facing in the south of the country where, of course, the Ukrainians have been advancing. Uh, over the last 24 hours or so, we've gotten sort of a mixed bag of news from the Kupiansk area. The Ukrainians are saying they are indeed under heavy shelling, they are under heavy pressure, but they've been able to fend off those Russian attempted advances. The Russians are saying that they have been making some gains, but it certainly seems as though right now there's a lot of shelling going on. There's a lot of dynamic on that front line, but very little in the way of real major territorial gains, Christina. 
And Fred, um, yet more attempted attacks, drone attacks on the, the Russian capital early this morning, but I believe there were mm. an attempted 13 drone attacks in total. Yeah, there certainly were. And, and uh, those 13 drone attacks have happened uh, over the past couple of weeks in the Moscow area, which seems to indicate that for the Russian capital, this is becoming a near daily occurrence uh, right now and certainly something that a lot of people in Moscow are having to get used to. It was quite interesting because when the first drone attacks happened a couple of months ago, and of course we've been covering this uh, as these things have been going on, the Russians really tried to downplay it, uh, saying that the air defense systems there were working, they were taking some of these drones down using electronic countermeasures, but recently they have been speaking of a very real threat. Of course, one of the things that happened last week was that the financial district in Moscow, the Moscow City, as they call it, was hit uh, on two subsequent days, and it was a building uh, that houses some financial companies, but also some government ministry offices as well. So certainly, that certainly was something that was quite scary for a lot of Moscow residents. The recent drone attack, or the one that happened overnight, is also quite an interesting one. One drone, the Russians are saying, was shot down near Kaluga. That's quite a way off uh, southwest of Moscow. But one was right on the sort of highway ring that surrounds Moscow in the southwest uh, of that. It's called the Imkad, which is sort of the, the major highway there. So that almost made it into the Moscow territory. Again, showing that right now the capital seems to be under fire quite regularly. And of course, we know that the Ukrainians have been vowing that they will bring the war to the Russians and to the Russian capital as well, Christina. All right, Fred Plack in there for us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Fred. Okay, straight ahead, another extraordinary summit is taking place on the political crisis in Niger. The details on that right after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to First Move. Leaders from the regional bloc ECOWAS are in Nigeria to discuss the ongoing political crisis in Niger. The bloc had threatened to use force if the country's ouster president, Mohamed Bazoum, was not reinstated by Sunday. The military junta has failed to comply, so now leaders are deciding their next steps. The summit comes as coup leaders announce the formation of a new government comprising of 21 ministers. Meanwhile, President Bazoum says he has been reduced to eating dry rice and pasta while under house arrest and that he has no medicine or electricity. Well, Larry Mido is joining us live with more on all of this. And uh, Larry, what, what can you tell us about the health of the ousted president following that report? And also, if anything of substance has come out of this meeting yet, it's been running now for a couple of hours. Right. Let's start with President Bazoum, who's been held since July 26th. That is when the head of the presidential guard, 
essentially overthrew his boss and declared himself the leader of Niger. And President Bazoum says he's not had human contact since August 4th, not even his doctor, who is the one that used to bring him food and medicine. And he's now surviving, as you mentioned, on dry rice and pasta. And if they run out of gas, then they won't have any way to cook because where he's being held does not have electricity. So that is a situation that uh, has led to the U.S. State Department saying they're concerned about his well, well-being and safety. The acting Deputy Secretary of State, uh, Victoria Newland, who was in Niger on Monday, was not allowed to meet with President Bazoum. The last time he met with anybody was with the interim president in Chad, uh, Mohammed Idris Debi Idno, who was trying to mediate here. And after that, he's not been seen from. So there's great concern about how President Bazoum is doing, even as the international community continues to call him to offer support and call for him to be released. In the meantime, ECOWAS leaders meeting again in Abuja in Nigeria. It's chaired by President Bola Tinubu of Nigeria. And he said that instability in Niger could have far-reaching consequences across the entire region. Still look to engage the party involved, including the coup leaders, in earnest discussion to convince them to relinquish power as suggested and reinstate President Bazoum. Bazoum. It is our duty to exhaust all avenues of engagement to ensure a swift return to constitutional governance in Niger. It's been fascinating to see the ousted foreign minister of Niger at this meeting in Abuja. It's not clear how he got there because there's still a no-fly zone and the military junta have closed the airspace, but he's there in Niger representing the country and the presidency of Niger has tweeted a picture of him at that meeting. So if you're keeping track, the military junta have announced their own cabinet, including a prime minister and these 20-plus ministers. And yet the ousted, prime, uh, the ousted foreign minister is in Abuja at this meeting where ECOWAS will decide if they will militarily intervene on Niger, in Niger or some other action, Christina. All right, uh, Larry Maduro keeping across the latest from that meeting there. Thanks uh, very much, Larry. I want to turn now to J. Peter Pham. He is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. He also served as the first ever U.S. special envoy for the Sahel region. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Um, so well, we, know, uh, we know that... Um, as this meeting is taking place today, critics have been saying that ECOWAS has now lost face and lost ground in their previous threats to step back, uh, to, to propose and then step back from military intervention. If they are seeking diplomatic solutions right now in this meeting, what possible options could they have to, de to deter coup leaders as, as we were hearing from uh, Larry just then, uh, reports this morning that they have announced their own uh, new formation of a government in just the last few hours? Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, Christina. The, the, the problem is that ECOWAS played this very poorly. After an initial good start in the immediate aftermath of the coup with a very strong statement, uh, didn't follow through with action. Uh, they made the mistake of setting a deadline that was a week long, which gave the junta uh, time to consolidate support. This was a coup launched by the presidential guard, a unit of a couple hundred men in a much larger military, which was not involved. But that week gave them time to consolidate support 
both within the military and also to rally support among especially youth populations, but other uh, in Niger who resented the idea of an ECOWAS threat of military intervention. So that was problem number one. Error number two was the very elementary one of making a threat that you're not prepared to carry through. Uh, in fact, ECOWAS claims to have a military plan. I don't think there is a military option that would not be catastrophic. Uh, it's one thing to intervene to help a loyalist faction that is staging a counter coup or defending uh, public. It's a whole other thing to go in against a well-trained, well-armed military. And I think ECOWAS uh, wasn't prepared for that. And then thirdly, President Tinubu in Nigeria uh, didn't even secure domestic support. Uh, the Nigerian Senate has already told him that they wouldn't support this. And Muslim and Christian leaders in Nigeria have been outspoken against uh, military intervention. And uh, so from what you're saying, I mean, the fallback here position is probably going to be diplomatic solutions. And, and the reports coming out of this meeting in the last hour indicate that ECOWAS want uh, negotiation and dialogue with the coup leaders. I mean, I wonder how how ready the coup leaders will be to listen to this. And also, we were hearing just then about concerns around, around ousted President Bazoum's health. I mean, what do you see as the chances of, of him being uh, released or even, I mean, reinstated seems out of the question right now? Uh, unfortunately, as much as uh, I regret to say so, despite winning 55% of the vote in uh, Niger less than three years ago, chances of restoration are increasingly slim. That being said, however, I think uh, the because President Bazoum has actually resigned, uh, that gives him a bit of leverage. And I think first, he and other, he's not the only one, but other officials who retain need to be released. Uh, no one's gonna find a resignation by someone who's being held prisoner, particularly credible, and their families have to be secure. Beyond that, I think we have to seek some sort of a solution that, though it's suboptimal, nevertheless preserves some of the gains that have been had in Niger in the fight against extremism and in human development, rather than risk the country falling into disorder and taking with it the entire region. This is this country has been the linchpin of the fight against extremism uh, in the Sahel mm -hmm. for some time. Uh, we, we know that the recent visit by the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State yielded very little results. I mean, what options do the United States have to intervene here at the moment, especially given that they still have a military presence on the ground and two air bases? Well, I think that's part of the, the equation. And I, I like to look at actually Acting Deputy Secretary of State Victoria Newland's visit as the glass half full rather than half empty. Uh, she left it with the offer of the United States exercising its good offices, uh, some sort of mediating role. It's been very telling that there have been violent demonstrations against the French. The junta has canceled five different security and military agreements with France. And it's likely that the French forces, about 1,500 currently in Niger, will be forced to leave just as they've been forced out of Mali and Burkina Faso, its neighbors. But there have been no protests at the U.S. Embassy and no demands for the U.S. to withdraw. So I think there is a room for maneuver here. Uh, it has to be very delicate. It's not going to be to everyone's liking, but I think we 
you know, we can't let the best be the enemy of the good here. And we have to preserve some of the hard-won gains that have cost a great deal of treasure, but also lives. Yeah. Delicate uh, maneuvers ahead. Uh, J. Peter Pham, we really appreciate your perspective on this. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. Coming up on First Move, rising revenues but falling subscriber numbers. Disney's mixed earnings means the CEO, Bob Iger, is feeling the pressure. We'll dive into Disney after the break. Welcome back to First Move. Now, U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday on Wall Street, a solidly higher open as new U.S. inflation numbers coming in pretty much in line with expectations. Tech stocks, the biggest gainers in early action. That includes Chinese tech giant Alibaba, the e-commerce firm, reporting strong double-digit sales growth in the latest quarter. But concerns remain on how the slowdown in the Chinese economy will hurt results going forward. And speaking of the consumer, a big, big murder in the world of luxury tapestry. The owner of Coach is buying up Capri Holdings for $8.5 billion. Capri is the owner of the Versace, Jimmy Choo and Michael Kors brands. Well, Disney stocks up right now after the House of Mouse posted a mixed third quarter earnings, uh, while overall revenue rose 4% on a year ago. The streaming service Disney Plus continues to drag on the bottom line. Subscribers fell over 7% on the previous quarter. And despite the dwindling viewership, Disney Plus is raising the price of its ad-free streaming tier. Well, Tim Nolan is a senior media tech analyst at Macquarie and joining us live now. Uh, so, Tim, the big takeaway from yesterday's report is this aggressive move to increase streaming costs. Uh, Disney Plus uh, now costing twice the original price of when this, the service debuted four years ago. Is this uh, cracked, uh, this rise and also the crackdown on password sharing going to be enough here to stem the rot? Or is the disruptive streaming model as we know it dead? Hmm. No, streaming is very vibrant, uh, I believe, and um, these steps Disney is taking will get it toward profitability. They have this target of having their direct-to-consumer business to be profitable by uh, the end of fiscal 24. So, you know, that's only five quarters away from now. Disney has a September year-end. Um, so, you know, they've been sinking so much into content production, as has all the other streaming services for a few years now. And that's why they have these uh, operating losses. Um, in the quarter that they reported, um, their, their streaming services, actually, yes, they were negative, but they were supposed to be more negative. The company guided it to around $750 million of losses in the quarter, and they did, quote unquote, only about $500 million of losses, so it was better. Um, and so the steps that they announced um, with the um, uh, uh, price increases, um, ad tier plans to be rolled out in Canada and Europe, and as you mentioned, the password sharing plan, I think are all steps toward improving that profitability profile. Another thing you referred to is, I think you're kind of asking how will consumers respond to a price increase? Um, obviously, you're not happy to see that, but Disney is a very, very popular service. We've seen other streaming services led by Netflix for several years now raising price. You know, its initial uh, US uh, price tier for Netflix years ago was $8 and now it's over 15. So um, there is scope to raise price. There is consumer demand for the content. As long as there is new, fresh and high quality content hitting that platform, I think consumers will be able to pay for it. The question then is how do investors look at 
the subscriber numbers versus the earnings which they're going to generate. That's a bit of a tussle between those two factors that investors are looking at. Also, we know, Tim, that the box office is not proving particularly fruitful for Disney uh, either, even though, as you rightly point out, streaming not quite as bad as they had expected. What, in your view, will the recent successes of, say, the Barbenheimer phenomenon have meant for Disney, who have, by all accounts, put all their eggs in the Marvel basket, and that cash machine appears to be fading? Mm. Yeah, well, uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer were not Disney movies, of course, but it is uh, encouraging that they did very well at the box office. So consumers are going back to the box office after after COVID lockdown. So that's good to see. Disney um, had a very, very, very strong run over many years. You mentioned Marvel, but also Lucasfilm, Star Wars and Pixar and even just Disney's own in-house studio that it's had for decades um, has turned out lots and lots of hits over the last many number of years. Very recently, it's true. Um, the box office attendance uh, has been lower for some of those movies that Disney has put out. Maybe that's down to um, uh, prior management from a few years ago instituting a different process of, of greenlighting and creating films, and that didn't seem to work. Seems to be one reason why Bob Iger came back as CEO was to reinvigorate the creative efforts at Disney, and he committed on the on the earnings call last night to um, improving the output, um, you know, making better movies that are going to be more popular. Um, they still have very strong IP, very strong franchises. There are supposed to be more Star Wars movies coming. There are um, Marvel movies, um, you know, that have come out that have done well. Uh, I, I think they will continue to produce uh, high quality content. Again, the question is, what is the profitability of these? You used to have movies in the box office that would then go to paying TV services, that would then go on to TV. As consumers are cutting the cord a lot of that is falling away and disney made this plan a few years ago to put all of these first run movies onto their streaming services so if they can generate those subscriber numbers at higher prices then ultimately that's the big question is how can their streaming business turn a profit and uh, certainly get better from where it is now and recover uh, a lot of the lost uh, money that, that, that disney's been incurring over the last few years yeah, we'll be keeping a close eye on uh, what those streaming hikes mean. And of course, what happens next for Bob Iger? As you mentioned, he was reinstated last year to turn around Disney's fortunes. Hasn't done that yet. Uh, Tim, it's great to have your perspective on this. Thanks very much. Thank you. Now, Beijing is blasting a Biden administration executive order that restricts U.S. investments in Chinese tech. The White House announcing the move on Wednesday, citing the need to protect U.S. national security. China says it will hurt the global economic recovery. Chinese tech startups could get hit particularly hard. Anna Corrin has more now from Hong Kong. Tensions between the world's two largest economies are expected to worsen following U.S. President Biden's signing of an executive order banning new American investments in key technology industries in China, Hong Kong and Macau that could be used to enhance Beijing's military capabilities. This was long expected. Now we know the details. It will target three sectors, semiconductors and microelectronics, quantum information technologies, and certain artificial intelligence systems. This means U.S. private equity, venture capital, joint ventures and greenfield investments will not be allowed to invest and help China develop technologies that could support its military modernization and undermine U.S. national security. The Treasury Department released this statement. 
The Biden administration is committed to keeping America safe and defending America's national security through appropriately protecting technologies that are critical to the next generation of military innovation. A U.S. official said this was a national security action, not an economic one. But China wasn't buying it. Beijing strongly believes the U.S. is trying to contain its rise. The Chinese Commerce Ministry said it reserves the right to take measures in response, while the Foreign Ministry released this statement. It's a blatant act of economic coercion and scientific and technological bullying. The real purpose is to deprive China of its right to development and safeguard its own hegemonic interests. This comes as tensions between the US and China are at their most strained in decades. There's been a parade of top US administration officials recently visit Beijing. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Climate Envoy John Kerry in attempts to get the US-China relationship back on track, something President Biden desperately wants. But this executive order, expected to be implemented next year, could certainly affect those plans. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. Now, still to come on First Move, a never-before-seen look at the front lines of the war in southern Ukraine. We'll be back with that after this quick break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. We're back now with a CNN exclusive, an up-close and frightening look at an area of Ukraine's front lines that no reporter had seen until our correspondent Nick Payton-Walsh. And we should warn you, some of what you're about to see is graphic. The brutal work here the world hasn't seen but wants its results. From the West, they have words and weapons of support, but out here, it's them alone in searing heat, cloaked in dust. In the southern counter-offensive near Orkhiv, Ukraine has the initiative. Yet, they have to shoot their way forwards, round by round. The Russians are just past the building on the horizon. Keep moving, guys. They're very anxious. We leave. We're the first journalist to reach this part of Ukraine's counter-offensive push south towards Robotine. So they're pretty sure the tank was spotted by the Russians, and so now we're moving fast out of here because they're expecting return fire. The losses from their early assaults evident. This a destroyed US-supplied Bradley armoured vehicle. In this thick dust, these tankers moving forwards to fire at Russian positions, which they say are beginning to look in peril as Ukraine's southern counter-offensive pushes forwards. The 15th National Guard have lost many friends here, but also gained ground. It has been incredibly tough, but some faces we saw over the past week have brightened. Robotina has got closer. 
some of the assessment of their fight and the tools given towards it grates here. They're being expected to do things no NATO army would attempt with equipment they'd scoff at. The Humvee we travel in, with tyres so threadbare, no American soldier would be expected to drive it. They have no time for armchair assessments that they're failing. And that underestimation is visible here, in the nearest town of Orkhiv, pummeled by the main problem, Russian air superiority and the half-ton bombs they drop. At any moment, it may not matter how much cover you have. We take cover in a basement. One day, 20 rockets hit in as many minutes. The wait now is for what they think is another missile to come in and land. The smell of death haunts the rubble, where entire lives have been torn through. Now, this was the main humanitarian aid point of the town. And weeks ago, this was where the remaining locals would be hiding out, getting shelter from airstrikes. But it's taken a direct hit and quite a few people lost their lives when this explosion happened. You can still smell uh, the explosive in the air. In Moscow's warped world of targeting, it is these men, the military medics, who feel hunted. The underground world in which they live is hidden as their last two triage points have been bombed. And in the three hours a day they spend above ground, this is what happens. This is rare footage of their frontline rescues. The painkillers, clearly not enough. Treatments given at up to 100 miles an hour over bumpy shelled roads. It seems miraculous anyone makes it. In the back of this armoured vehicle, not everyone has. These transfers perilous, their vehicles bunched together, perhaps visible to Russian jets. Sometimes they don't all come back. On Friday, fellow medic Andrei, aged 33, was hit by artillery. They buried him Monday. Down here, death is far too close, and they seem to shut it out. Yeah. 
They need the war to end in months, though, not years, before nothing but dust is left. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Orakhiv, Ukraine. Israel's judicial overhaul is having a chilling effect on the country's tech startups, with some business owners taking steps to shift their business overseas. Elliot Gotkin has more. Tel Aviv last Saturday night. And nearly every Saturday night for the past 30-plus weeks. Tens of thousands of Israelis protesting against the government's judicial overhaul. Among them, Chen Amit, along with his family. We drive for democracy and we fight for democracy. When he's not protesting, the active director of Microsoft, Amit runs an $8 billion financial technology startup. The judicial overhaul, he says, and the uncertainty, disruption and risks that come with it has forced him to shift money and talent overseas. We're holding all our funds outside of Israel, outside of uh, payroll in Israel for a few months. That's actually a contractual obligation. One of our banks enforced on us. There was a business continuity risk, so uh, we applied for and received a blanket L1 visa in the US, a visa that allows us uh, in, with a few days' notice to relocate as many employees as we need. Within the next 18 months, Amit expects 15% of his Israeli staff to move. He's not alone. A recent poll from the non-profit startup Nation Central found almost 70% of startups are taking steps like shifting money, workers and even their headquarters outside of Israel. At the same time, money going into Israeli startups is plunging. About 70% reduction from last year to this year. Um, but the trend is also worry, worrisome because when you see in the U.S. where it's starting to uh, uh, ease off and actually start to climb, uh, we've seen an additional decline of 30% in the last quarter. Adding to the gloom, a declining shekel and warnings from Morgan Stanley, Moody's and even officials from Israel's own finance ministry that the judicial overhaul could do serious damage to the economy. The government's response? Keep calm and carry on. This is a momentary reaction. When the dust settles, it will become clear that Israel's economy is very strong. But with a smaller or shrinking tech ecosystem, it may not grow as fast as it could. Outside of reservists refusing to serve the possibility of Israel's stable tech startups rushing for the exits represents perhaps the biggest threat to Israel's future. Technology accounts for half of all exports. And if companies start to leave, Israel's best and brightest may not be far behind. Protesters still hope the government will reverse course or that laws designed to weaken and reduce the independence of the Supreme Court could be struck down. If neither of those happen, the so-called startup nation may soon need to find a new nickname. Elliot Gottkin, CNN, Tel Aviv. And finally on First Move, a big day for billionaire Sir Richard Branson. Virgin Galactic, the space tourism company he founded, is preparing to launch its first passengers to the edge of the cosmos. The mission gets off the ground in New Mexico in just over an hour's time, taking off like a conventional airplane. At a designated altitude, the mothership will release the rocket-powered space plane, which fires its motors to send it shooting towards the stars. Three passengers are on board, including a former Olympic canoeist and a health and wellness coach. Amazing. We wish them a safe flight. And that is it for our show. Stay with us. Connect the World is coming up, up after the break.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.